Would you open your Bibles to um, Galatians chapter 3? We are going to be at, in, uh, in our time in the Word this morning. We're going to be at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And uh, we went all the way through the end of chapter 3 last week. And I wanted to uh, come back to a few of those verses today because we didn't really have a whole lot of time to really dig into those verses, and there's some really, really, really important things that we need to uh, zone in on this morning. And so uh, verse 21 to uh, verse 7 in uh, Galatians uh, 3 and 4 today. Our series, I think this is week number eight uh, in the Galatians series, and uh, the, the the theme of the series is for freedom. So every, every time that we're engaging in the book of Galatians, we need to have the mindset and the understanding and the leaning in to, to ask the Lord to help us understand more and more what freedom in Christ uh, really means. And so I hope that again today that there would be an opportunity for you to be encouraged uh, by the freedom that we have. Uh, in Christ. Um, uh, book context, I, I want to make sure that we have book context every time we get into these passages. Uh, remember Judaizers who were the people from Jerusalem who came up to the churches in Galatia and they were telling the new believers who were non-Jewish known as Gentiles that they needed to add Moses, the Mosaic law, to Jesus for salvation. And so the Judaizers, um, their message was that salvation, yes, is in Jesus, but also the Mosaic Law And it was distinctively Jewish, that salvation was still distinctively Jewish. Um, juxtapose that with Paul, the message of Paul who wrote the book of Galatians. Uh, his, his message, the true message, the gospel message is Jesus plus nothing. And it wasn't distinctively Jewish, it was for all nations. And so I think that context is really important for us uh, each and every week as we as we come to these uh, passages. The, the big idea today, uh, let me say the, like the sermon in a sentence. The big idea today is what does it look like, what does it mean for us to have an intimate relationship with God? How do we cultivate that? How do we understand that? What does that mean for us as a people uh, to have an intimate, personal relationship with God? And I wanna be honest here at the beginning. Uh, intimacy with God is not something that um, has come naturally or easy for me in my life, in my journey with uh, following Jesus, in my relationship with God uh, in the context of the church as we have unpacked a bit of my testimony over these last weeks in the book of Galatians. Uh, for many years, I would, I, I would say that my, my relationship with God would be described this way, a low-grade evangelical fever. Like, just always had a bit of a low-grade evangelical fever as I understood my relationship with God. I wouldn't describe it as a personal, intimate relationship. I was working hard at obedience through a pretty legalistic lens. And uh, I always had this thought, and here's what the thought that goes with the low-grade evangelical fever. Here's the thought. I'm not quite doing enough. Or the question, am I doing enough? Uh, to develop uh, this intimate relationship with God. It was a, a performance bent. A low-grade evangelical fever is a performance bent, and my thought was I'm always falling just a little bit too short. Uh, and that was many years of my life, and what we're gonna get into today theologically in the Word of God really, really, really helps me, really helps me, and I pray and hope that it will help you as well as we think about together 
uh, what it means to have an intimate, personal relationship with God through Jesus. So um, let me bring up verse 21. I'm going to offer a couple of verses on the screen here, and then we'll open our, uh, um, the Bible together and look through this. Here is Galatians 3.21. I'm going to pick up a little bit from where we ended last week. Paul says this, for if a law, he's speaking of any law, but really specifically he's talking about the Mosaic law. For if a law had been given that could impart life, that could actually bring saving life to people, if there was a law that could do that, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. If it was possible that a law could impart life, then righteousness would come that way. There is an essential, here's the point on this verse, there is an essential inability of the law of rules. There is an essential inability of the law to bring here this saving life. There is an essential inability of the Mosaic law to bring saving life to people. And Paul, know this, is certainly, when he makes this statement in verse 21, he is upsetting the Judaizers greatly here. Because Jewish history and Jewish tradition had elevated the Mosaic law to that which God uses to redeem. Again, Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. The law, what Paul's saying here, the law doesn't save. The law cannot save. The law does not redeem. Here's the next verse. But the scripture, but the scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the big question answered, right? If, if Paul is saying that there's an essential inability of the law to bring saving life, then the big question is this, well, why the law to begin with? What, what is the reason for the law? And this verse is the, is the huge question answered as it relates to the old covenant law, and it's this, to show the whole world that it is a prisoner of sin and needs to be redeemed rescued, restored. The function of the law is to reveal that we are imprisoned to sin. The function of the law is to help you and I understand we need a savior. The law helps us understand the truth that we need a savior. And I would say it to you this way, grace actually becomes amazing, right? The, the, the phrase amazing grace, the famous hymn, Grace actually becomes amazing when we understand that we are imprisoned under sin and we need saving. That's when grace becomes amazing in our lives. We are captive and the grace of Jesus has liberated us by amazing grace. Faith in Jesus is where the saving is, amen? Faith in Jesus is where the saving is. The law cannot save. Faith in Jesus is where the saving is. The law helps us understand that we need a savior. Hallelujah, Jesus is the savior and faith is where the saving is. So I'm gonna pick up uh, here with you if you have your Bibles open. Um, join with me or you can pull this up on your phone. Uh, would love for you to follow along. Again, we're gonna be through verse seven in chapter two. So let me pick up in verse 23 and read through 25 to get started. 
Before this faith came, speaking of faith in Jesus alone, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until, big word there, really important word, until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that Jesus has come, now that the new covenant message of grace has been inaugurated by Jesus himself, by the blood of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, we are no longer under the supervision of the Mosaic law. These are really important things for us to understand. Um, We might read this, these verses at first glance and think that Paul is saying, when he speaks of faith here as a personal faith response to Jesus, But that's actually not not what Paul is saying about faith. What Paul's saying here is not an individual faith response to Jesus. What he's talking about is the era of the law and the era of faith. He's talking about the Mosaic law and the new covenant message of Jesus. That is the context in which he is speaking. So we need to understand this as um, in Jesus, it is a new era. Faith in Jesus replacing the era of the works of the law. And um, the era of law of Moses has been superseded by the era of Christ and his spirit. And I want to zone in on verse 25 and make a few points about this. I'll read this with you again. Now that faith has come, now that the era of faith has come, the era of the law has been superseded. Now that the f- era of faith has come, here's what Paul says. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. Could Paul be any more clear here? He's not dancing around and hoping that we understand what he's saying. I don't think he could be more clear with helping us understand, understand that we've been liberated from the demands of the law. Because what what he's fighting for here, and we talked about this every week in the series, Paul is seeing churches that he planted in the message of grace who are being led astray to be law-centered in Moses. And what he is fighting for is for these churches that are based on the new covenant message of grace in Jesus to be grace-centered, Jesus-centered, spirit-centered, period. So here's a couple of points about this verse that I think is really important for us. The law was the supervisor. We're no longer under the supervision of the law. So the law was the supervisor until Christ. Another uh, way to translate um, the Greek word that's translated supervisor is guardian. And so when we think about this verse, think in charge. Like the law was put in charge until Jesus came, and now the law is no longer in charge anymore. So that's, that's one really important thing to grab onto in this verse. The second thing in this verse that is really important is that the law was temporal. It had a temporary place in the salvation history of God. And now that Christ has come, it has ended. Once a person comes to Christ, the law is no longer in charge 
the law is no longer in charge. You remember being as um, when you were a kid and you were, uh, I remember being in elementary school and the teacher would leave the room and you're not supposed to talk. And if someone talked, I remember doing this, like if Jeremy Green started talking, I, I just would do this, I'd, be like, I'd go, I would just point at him until the teacher came back. And then I would see James back here talking, I'd go, and I would just, and then we were, by the time the teacher came in, everybody was pointing at everybody. Doesn't that sound awful? And then when that happens, like you, you, you get defensive and then you say the statement, well, you're not the boss of me. Any, any kids ever, like in your house and your sibling, I had an older sister and she would try to start parenting me. You're not the boss of me. Like I, I wanna invite you to have that statement relating to the old covenant Mosaic law. You're not the boss of me anymore. Like that is the mindset that Paul is trying to get across here to the churches in Galatia and to us. All of those people, everyone who believes are blessed, saved, and heirs in the kingdom of God. Every single person. Now that we are under grace, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We are now being led by Jesus and by his spirit. And then that brings us to what I would say is really the thesis of the entire book of Galatians. What Paul has just said in verses 21 to 25, and 21 to 25 leads us, it's Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Uh, this is the thesis of the entire book of Galatians. Uh, and I want to spend some time on this with you. So let's read this together. Uh, Paul says, you are all, I would encourage you to circle all. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, for all of you, I would circle all of you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28, really, really, really famous verse in the book of Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek or Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'd encourage you to circle the word all. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according with the promise. Um, all means all. All people, anyone. Anyone that believes in the person and the work of Jesus. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile. It doesn't matter any distinction, any human distinction that humans put on other people that actually divide. Paul is literally blowing it up in this moment to help people understand that the kingdom of God is a revolution that is so different from how we think about relating with one another. And we have to understand this by revelation and we have to embrace the revolution that Paul is teaching us about what it means to be in Christ. All are one in 
Christ. Amen? Only the love, hear this, only the love and the grace of Jesus Christ can unite a disunited world that is so full of distinctions. Only the love and the grace of Jesus can open our blind eyes and see how even we participate in creating distinctions among people. And Paul is saying here, every single person has been created in the very image, in the very likeness of God. And every single person who comes to Jesus by faith belongs. And they have value. And they're in the family. And not only that, they're an heir according to the promise. This is radical inclusivity of the gospel of grace. Paul says, we are all sons of God. This speaks to a special place of intimacy. The word of the morning is intimacy. We are all sons of God. This speaks of a special intimacy that we have with the Father. And Paul isn't specifying manliness here. He's not speaking about dudes. He's, he's, he's speaking this reality that every single person is, has, has, um, comes under the spirit of adoption. And that all of us have this intimacy with God. And I think it's hard. I think it's hard for us. Um, And so we need to think about this. And we need to ask the Spirit to help us see this and understand this. Because as human beings uh, in this world uh, that has so many places of division and distinctions, it's, it's hard for us with our natural eyes, hear this, to fully get a revelation and and embrace the revolution that's being proclaimed over us today. We need the grace of Jesus and the leadership of the Holy Spirit to help us see so that we walk in the fullness of what God has given us as the body of Christ. Humans, me, we so selfishly and so pridefully demean other humans with all of these classifications. And what Paul is saying here, the revelation and the revolution is kingdom, unity, and value for every single person, period. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here with you by using words revelation and revolution. I'm really not trying to stir it up emotionally for you. I really am just wanting you to see how incredibly um, amazing the gospel invitation is for every single person. And how different it is from the message of the world. Faith in Christ, hear this, faith in Christ obliterates distinctions. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. The blood of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the way of Jesus has broken all of the distinctions that divide people. And his grace has brought all of us under the banner of his love. No one is inferior in the kingdom of God. There is no second in line at the table of grace. Are we here? Are we here? Consider this. How, how do we need, how do I need, how do you need, how do we need the radical biblical? I use the word radical a lot, radical inclusivity. Really, it's just, it's the biblical message, you guys. 
It feels radical to us sometimes because of cultures that we've grown up in or churches that we've grown up in or families that we've grown up in or whatever. And so I use the word radical to get your attention, but really it's the biblical message. This is what the scriptures teach us. How do we need the biblical message of grace to work itself into our hearts and out into our lives? So that Galatians 3.28 isn't just a cute little verse that we like to quote, but it's actually something that gives me a foundation for my life and it changes the way I actually live and treat people in everyday life. No inferiorities, no prejudices, no more human distinctions. This is, this is the way, this is the message. All valued, all honored, all needed. Once again, as we have done over and over in this series, we arrive with Paul really on the same shore, that acceptance before God, that knowing that God has, has spoken, has imparted this truth over us. You are the righteousness of God. You are justified by faith alone and Jesus alone by faith alone and not by anything else. That, that, is, that is where the freedom is. Everyone who believes is clothed with Christ. Jews and Gentiles, anyone and everyone, everyone who believes. Um, that racial tension that was so prevalent between Jews and Gentiles had to go away. It had to go away. That's what Paul is speaking to here. All of that racial tension between Jews and Gentiles had to go away. Everyone who believes is clothed with Christ. Everyone who believes is a son of God, male and female. All of that minimization of women and all the patriarchy, all of that had to go away. Everyone who believes is a son of God. Are you picking up what I'm, what I'm sharing in the scripture? Everyone is a son of God. Everyone carries the, uh, the adoption, the, the spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship, which is intimacy with God culturally and socially. Such massive shifts that Paul is talking about here in the first century church. Everyone who believes is an heir. Slave, a slave is an heir. A, a free person. Every, everyone who believes is an heir of the kingdom of God. Again, the idea is uh, adoption into sonship, which is what Paul uh, gets into next. And so he, he speaks the thesis of the entire book of Galatians. And then in the first seven verses of Galatians 4, uh, he's gonna use an illustration and then an application for us to really understand what it means for us to be brought in as adopted sons and daughters into the family of God, And so here is the illustration and the analogy applied. Next uh, few verses. Uh, skip that. Okay. And we'll finish here. But I got a lot more to say after I read this, so just don't go anywhere. Um, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is this. Illustration, okay? Word picture. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Just a real life example that people can grab onto and understand. 
When he's a child, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. That's the analogy. Here's the application. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world or the elementary principles. He's speaking about the Mosaic law. He's, he's using the Mosaic law to help us think about, think about being in, in an, like an elementary school. Can we learn the ABCs? ABCs and the one, two, threes. That's, that's the analogy. That's the illustration he's making. When we were children, we were in slavery under the basic elementary principles of the world. But when the time had fully come or when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full rights of sons, of sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our own hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God sent the spirit of his own son into our own hearts. And that spirit in our own heart directs attention to the Father with this statement, Abba. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So you are no longer a slave. You are no longer enslaved. But you are a son. You are under the spirit of adoption. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So good. Here's the analogy. You have this, this reality that a child is destined to inherit the estate of his father. But a child doesn't inherit the estate of his father until adulthood. And so the analogy that Paul is making during the growing up years of this child, a child is, is subject to, he is under the leadership of, he is under guardians and trustees. So Paul is saying when we were children, he's using this analogy as a description of what it means to be under the law. When we were children, when we were immature, when we were learning our ABCs, one, two, threes, like that's the analogy that Paul is using. Here's the application. The era of the law is the childhood period. That's the analogy that Paul is making, and he calls it a time of slavery. There's no freedom when we are under the, uh, the leadership, under the guardianship of the law. But now that Jesus has come, the fullness of time has come, and Jesus has redeemed us from that. He has inaugurated the time of faith, the era of faith. Again, he's juxtaposing the era of the law with the era of faith in Christ. So again, verse three, basic principles, elementary principles. This is the analogy to the law. And the law gets us enslaved. It says it right there in verse three. I want to remind you of a verse earlier in chapter three. Verse 10, Paul says, for all who rely on the law are under a curse. That's what he says in verse 10 in chapter 3. What he says in chapter 4 is, if we stay under these basic elementary principles, we remain enslaved. There's no freedom in that for us. 
and were in that until the fullness of time had come, until God sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus has paid the price for us so that we can be free. Verse 13 in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And here's what that means for people that have, been, that have come under and in the spirit of adoption. It means that we are heirs. It means that we are heirs. All sons and daughters under the adoption have the spirit and have the inheritance that has been promised to Abraham and all of his descendants. If you have your Bible open, turn one page over to Ephesians 1. One page over to Ephesians 1. Two verses. I'm going to read 13 and 14. All sons and daughters under the spirit of adoption have the spirit and are guaranteed the inheritance. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, verses 13 and 14, Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Hallelujah. So think about this with me. Hear this, consider this, wrestle with this, believe this in this illustration and this analogy. A lack of maturity, a lack of maturity, a lack of understanding, a lack of discernment means that we're going to stay in this elementary ABC's, one, two, three's mindset of following Jesus. And Paul calls that enslavement, and he calls it immature. And he says, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus came and released you from being enslaved. You were redeemed from the curse of the law, and now you are free in your adoption with the full inheritance and full intimacy with God. And so when you think about adoption, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, when my, one of my spiritual fathers in my life uh, he and his wife uh, adopted a son. And um, their son was not the same race that they were. And so they're Caucasian, and they adopted an African-American little boy. And they adopted another little boy. And I remember, I'll always remember, do you remember the Sunday when they told this story at Fellowship? I'll never forget it. And this is what he said. Here's what, here's what he was proclaiming to us. He's like, there's a newness in me understanding a revelation of the spirit of adoption this because when we, go, when we go adopted Drew and then they shared it again when they adopted David, it is this. They were not his biological, biological children. But he said, out of all the other kids in the whole world, I chose you. I choose you. Out of every kid in the whole world, I chose you to be in my family. So a spirit of adoption, understanding this for us in intimacy with God is going, understanding knowing that God has chosen you to belong in his family. And it's this, you belong in the family. In other words, you have the full rights of the inheritance that has been promised over and over and over again. So my prayer as I'm working through this this week 
is that there would be healing today, literal healing today, like breakthrough, supernatural healing in our minds. And when we find healing in our minds, it transforms the way we live our lives. And so be healed today of any wrong thought that believes that you aren't sitting at the king's table. Be healed today of any wrong thought that you in Christ don't have the full inheritance of the kingdom of God simply because you have believed and received the message of Jesus. Here's the lies of the enemy. The lies of the enemy doesn't want you to believe that you're sitting at the king's table with the full inheritance. And the fact that you're sitting at the king's table and that you have the full inheritance of the kingdom, he doesn't want you to believe that that's free in grace, that it's up to you to stay there. And so the lies of the enemy in this message is this, you're not really free. You're not really free. You're still under the curse and you're enslaved to the law. And you better do this, that, and the other or God's gonna break his fellowship with you. Or God only loves you if, lie of the enemy. Or another lie of the enemy, God maintains fellowship with you if you, if you. And here's what I'm proclaiming to you by the authority of God's word. Christianity isn't if you. Christianity isn't if you. Christianity is done for you. Christianity is, it is finished. That is what the message of Christianity is. And so for Paul, who is a freedom fighter, governing our lives by the law is elementary school. It is childish. It lacks discernment and understanding. And standing under the grace of God in Jesus is actually maturity, which is evident by your empowerment to call God like Jesus called his father, Abba. There's a maturity and understanding and intimacy that we have with God that the spirit of Christ in us can declare an intimate relationship with God that we might even call God the father, Abba. This is so incredible. This is so incredible. That word Abba, it's only three times in the New Testament Uh, We see it in Mark 16 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus addresses the Father as Abba in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it in Galatians 4 today, and we see Paul talk about it again in Romans chapter 8. We're going to read a brief passage in Romans 8 in just just a minute. Uh, But it's amazing. Abba is the Aramaic term for father. That's where the word comes from. And it's the language that Jesus used in addressing the Father in the garden. And it's, a, it's an intimate address to the holy, righteous Father. Um, I love being a dad. Um, we're about to go on a 13-hour road trip right after this service today. Sometimes on a 13-hour road trip with five kids in a minivan. I don't always love that. But I do love being a dad. And it's really only on Father's Day, and it's only in cards that my, any of my kids address me as father, right? They address me as dad. Um, when they're little, they address me as daddy. And my two youngest, Brennan, who's 12, and Michaela, who's nine, I don't know where they picked us up from, but over the last year or two, those two have started calling me papa, or Brennan sometimes calls me peepaw. And I, 
I ain't mad at them. I called my granddad Papa. And I love that they call me Papa because I want them to know that we have an intimate connection. Are you guys with me right now? An intimate connection. Um, Jesus addresses the Father as Abba in the garden. Paul picks up the language in Galatians 4 and in, and in um, Romans chapter 8. Um, being adopted, having a spirit of adoption uh, means that we live in an intimate relationship with God, period. Um, and that's the, again, that's the main idea of our time today. What does it mean for us to understand how, how to have a more intimate relationship with God? Um, how, uh, well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you this visual. Uh, here's the visual. You're, you are sitting at the table of grace. You are sitting at the banquet table in God's kingdom. And there's a seat at the table and it has your name on it. So I want you to visualize like the banquet table of God, the invitation of grace is all who come belong. All who come are valued, right? Everything we've been talking about. And it has a seat with your name on it. You've been adopted into the family and you are a full-grown heir. And here's what that literally means. Here's what it means that you are an heir in the kingdom of God. It means this, hear this. It means that all that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. That, that's what that means. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Romans 8, this is the third place in the scripture. Mark 16, Galatians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Here's a few verses in Romans 8. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our own spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus in the kingdom of God belongs to us. How do you address God? How do you address the Father? How do you address Jesus? It's in the way you interact, in the way you pray. Here's some ways that I address God. Father God, um, Heavenly Father. I started thinking of this song. I'm not gonna sing it. Oh, I'm gonna sing it, yeah. Oh, Heavenly Father. Anybody know 90s? Oh, light of the world. You are the light of the world. Anyone? Anyone? 1990s, I'm 48. I, I, I'm going to embarrass myself, Joe. Uh, dear Lord, I use the phrase, dear Lord. Another phrase I use, dear Jesus. What I want to say to you is if you address God in any of these ways, they're all true and they're all appropriate, okay? But here's what I'm inviting. May I suggest that you also learn to address God as Abba. I, until this week, I, I'm, I'm telling you this is true. Until this week, I have never addressed God as Abba. Intimacy with God has been a challenge for me. I talked about that at the beginning. And I was in my office, I think this was on Wednesday, 
And I, be, I believed, I just had this sense from the Holy Spirit that God was leading me to address him as Abba in my own life, in my own prayers. And I'm inviting you to consider doing the same. The first century New Covenant Church saw addressing God as Abba as their distinctive mark. I learned that this week in my study. I had never read that before or learned that before. I'm gonna read that again. The first century New Covenant Church saw addressing God as Abba as a distinctive mark. It's, it's almost like saying, we are the ones that have an intimate personal relationship with the living God, and we call him Abba. A relationship that is safe and secure, never to be undone because Jesus has secured it for us. And so here's a few thoughts for you. If you, like me, want to um, begin addressing, and it's just a suggestion, right? It's just a suggestion. Um, I don't know how the slides ended up. Uh, Oh, Cool. Here we go. So four statements. Worship team, you can begin to move back up here as well. Addressing God as Abba is a declaration that you are adopted as an heir. No longer under the curse of the law. No longer seeing God through the lens of, have I done enough? Or am I doing enough? Addressing God as Abba sees God through the lens of intimacy. And I belong. Addressing God as Abba is a declaration that you are being led by the Spirit of God. You see, legalists, legalists are led by the law. Hedonists are led by their own desires. Materialists are led by their own possessions. Christians are the sons and daughters of God who are led by the Spirit of God who cries out, Abba, Father. Two more. Addressing God as Abba is a declaration of sonship or a declaration of your own adoption into the family of God. Jesus prompts my decisions. Jesus stirs my emotions. Jesus guides my life. Jesus secures my eternity. Addressing God as Abba is a declaration of your own rest. Here's what heirs don't worry about. Heirs don't worry about being an heir. They just know they're an heir because they're in the family. Are you with me right now? They don't worry about not being an heir because they're an heir. And it puts us at a place of rest. Heirs don't worry about where the spirit will lead them. They know it's always for our good and for the glory of our Abba. I don't worry about where the Spirit is going to lead me because I trust wherever it is, it's always for my good and it's always for the glory of Abba. Heirs don't struggle with low-grade evangelical fever. Heirs know that Abba will never leave them or forsake them. Heirs know that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts The spirit who calls out, Abba, Abba, Father. Would you pray with me? Abba, Abba, Father, help me, help us understand more fully this special place of intimacy that we have with you. 
help us understand and grow and delight and be transformed by the truth that we are heirs in the kingdom of God, co-heirs with Christ. I pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit this morning, not just in the space that we have here, but as we leave here and we go about our weeks, but not just this week, but a real change that cultivating an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with you, Lord, that it would would be a season of freshness and newness for us. And that would lead us to places of rest and freedom that maybe that we have not experienced before. So Abba, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, whose spirit is in us, crying out to you as Abba, Father. Amen.